Welcome to another episode of Life as a Nephrologist podcast. I'm Sam Kent, your host. I'm a transplant nephrology fellow at Johns Hopkins. Today's topic is very timely. Uh, it focuses on increasing access to home therapies. Too many kidney patients face significant barriers to accessing life-saving care. Research shows longer, more frequent dialysis done at home yields better kidney health outcomes and improved quality of life for patients with chronic kidney disease and end-stage kidney disease. Yet, there are significant disparities in access to home modalities. Every racial and ethnic minority was significantly less likely to be treated with home dialysis than whites. Black patients are half as likely to receive PD and 60% less likely to get home HD. Hispanic patients are 40% less likely to get PD as whites and 75% less likely to be placed on home HD. In addition, Asians are 20% less likely to get PD and 50% less likely to get home HD when compared to white patients. These are very sobering statistics. We have four special guests today. I'd like to begin by introducing Melissa Bensuda. She began dialysis in 2002 and received a transplant in 2012 that lasted four years. Melissa since has resumed home dialysis while actively pursuing transplantation. She works full-time in the financial services industry and her spare time enjoys advocating for kidney patients. Also, we have Danushka Mohotege. She is a nephrologist and a medical instructor in the Division of Nephrology at Duke University Hospitals. She received a BA in Public Policy and Health Policy Certificate from Duke University in 2006. She now works under the mentorship of Dr. Ebony Bulaware and Dr. Chris Ademantidis to engage in patient and community-centered inequity-focused research around the impact of socio-structural factors on kidney health and kidney transplantation. We also have Jesse Roach. Dr. Jesse Roach is a strategist and nephrologist whose work focuses on improving access to kidney health by removing barriers to care through policy, partnerships, and research. He currently serves as a senior medical director for health equity at CVS Kidney Care, where he leads a multifaceted approach to removing barriers to kidney health among historically disenfranchised populations. Last but not the least, we have Jenny Shen. Dr. Shen is an assistant professor of medicine at UCLA and a practicing nephrologist at Harbor UCLA Medical Center, a safety net hospital. Her research focuses on accessing and improving outcomes on peritoneal dialysis, particularly in the area of health disparities. Welcome to all of you. I'd like to start off with uh, Danushka, whose research does focus on inequities, but we've noticed with increasing prevalence um, CKD is still largely going in undetected in most Americans who have disease. What role of, does lack of awareness play in slowing advancement in treatment options for CKD? Thank you for that question. I think it's one of the most important ones that we need to address. And I think to solve the issue of the inequity, we need a multi-level approach to this. So I think that this is where um, I would say that the solution is probably broader than the nephrology community itself, right? And we need our kind of public health infrastructure and our general internists and family medicine practitioners in communities to also start to have better capability to do early detection and have earlier conversations about chronic kidney disease in communities. 
we need to have the capacity to expand screening tools to a broader cohort of the population. And I really appreciate Dr. Sylvia Rosa's recent comment regarding USPSTF recommendations for chronic kidney disease screening be on the sort of radar so that we can uh, start to understand kidney health as sort of an essential early kind of prevention issue that we need to start tackling very early on and empowering patients through that mechanism to take, uh, have, you know, to feel more empowered to have a role in slowing chronic kidney disease and preventing chronic kidney disease. So that that's kind of my comment. I think, again, multi-system level intervention to do that early detection work is critical and moving the needle uh, even outside of the nephrology space is really critical. We need partners in this. Jesse, any thoughts on this? Yeah, I, I totally agree with everything that Danushka said. I um, also just wanted to add is that you're right, it's going to take everyone in the medical community and people even outside of the medical community to increase awareness of this. For better or worse, diabetes is prevalent and most people understand diabetes and that they need to check their sugars and other things behind it. And everyone knows someone who has that. But unfortunately, because we're not doing as good a job of detecting it, not everyone knows someone who has kidney disease or not everyone understands it. And so I think that's on us as nephrologists, but also on the medical community and I think outreach into pharmacies and into other primary care physicians offices and things is essential to sort of making people more aware of this. You know, I'd like to get a patient perspective on this. Um, and I'd like to ask Melissa, when you were diagnosed with kidney disease, was this a surprise or was this something part of a screening strategy that you participated in? I'd love to know how, how things evolved for you. Yeah, ex excellent question. Definitely not part of a screening strategy. So at the point that I was diagnosed, I was 25 years old. And the way I ended up being diagnosed was after months and months of testing of different symptoms that I was having, significant weight loss, um, difficulty swallowing, um, extremely tired. And unfortunately, the last thing that was checked was my kidneys. And at that point, um, my kidney function was essentially in stage three. So not routine and a lot of things ruled out simply because of my age of, you know, quote unquote, being too young to really have any major health issues. You know, in addition to the lack of general awareness of um, chronic kidney disease, I think significant barriers to care exist for actively fighting it, to be honest. I know, you know, we always talk about barriers, but, you know, I think naming them out right there and then I think it's an important thing. I, I'm curious to get uh, Dr. Shen's thought on this. And, you know, could we talk about what barriers patients are experiencing just to get to know about the disease? I would say one of the issues a lot of my patients have, because a lot of my patients actually meet them for the first time in the emergency room, and that's actually the first time they've actually showed up to be cared for in a formal healthcare setting. So I think we really have to be more creative and expand the options we have for bringing healthcare to our community and really partnering with the community. Because I mean, even myself as a physician with my schedule, it's really hard for me to find the time to make an appointment to see my doctor. I don't necessarily prioritize it. And I can't imagine, you know, if I weren't, if I weren't lucky enough to have my job, um, trying to squeeze that in would be challenging. And then I have insurance, so I know where to go for my care. A lot of my patients, they don't even know where to go to. Um, so I think some things that have worked really well are mobile clinics and health fairs. Um, but I think it's important that these are at the setting of where these patients live. 
not asking them to have to take a bus or take a subway to try to get to these um, places for their care. I would say that that would be a, a big place. And also, you know, once we screen them, making sure that they have some way of following up. So um, I work at a safety net hospital. Certainly there's a lot of free clinics as well, but making sure that everybody's aware of these resources, I think would go, uh, go a long way as well. Any thoughts, uh, Dr. Mahatege? I completely agree with everything Dr. Shen just mentioned and, and just want to share uh, I, the, the last thing I would say is it aligned with this idea of community engaged work is thinking outside of the box to community health workers and other trusted folks within a community to start to deliver interventions and do screenings. Also thinking about you know, faith-based leaders and other community leaders that are trusted individuals to bring in kind of education that can be delivered in a number of different ways, whether that is patients speaking about their own experience and empowering others to go and get screened and kind of, again, taking, taking the information and taking even the screening tools to places with a clear plan for follow-up and equipping federally qualified health centers and other safety net uh, centers with the resources to actually provide disease-modifying therapies like SGLT2 inhibitors. You know, since the focus of the podcast is to also talk about, you know, increasing access to home therapies, definitely, I think home therapies are currently, you could say, quote unquote, in vogue, but there's still a long way to go. You know, I'm, I'm curious to, to, to see what Jesse thinks that how, you know, how can we increase this uh, modality and, and how do we make sure the patients are actually, they know about it in the first place? So I think this is sort of a multi-pronged approach we have to take to getting higher adoption of this, especially in communities of color. I think it's one, just looking at the data and seeing where the disparities are and realizing that there is a disparity, there clearly is, but looking at everyone looking at their own practice and realizing that there's a disparity in the uptake of these um, therapies. I think then, I think we have to want then understand the barriers that these patients have it's hard to do home therapy if you don't have stable housing. It's hard to do home therapies if you have stable housing, but you don't have room for all of the equipment. And so we need to do a better job of understanding our actual patients. The patients don't live in the clinic. And so we need to understand where they're actually living at their homes. And then I also think when we're giving education and talking to them, we need to have people that look like the communities we're serving I think a lot of it is trust. And I think that we as a medical community have lost the trust of a lot of communities. And so I think having people that actually understand what it's like growing up in the community, understand what it's like living where in the areas that these patients live and understanding the struggles and can talk to them in the right way, I think is really important. So I think all of those things are what we need to do to increase um, uptake of the home therapies. Melissa, I understand that you started home dialysis, you know, once you progress towards end-stage kidney disease, was this something that was offered to you straight away or did you have to research it? Could you tell us about your journey towards that? Sure. It, it definitely wasn't anything that was presented to me as an option from the onset. Um, it really became more out of necessity that I did home dialysis. I refused to kind of do what my family thought I should do, which was to retire at a very young age and just commit to making dialysis my life. And so I needed to work full time, not just for financial reasons. I had had very young children, but for my own 
sanity, right? And self-gratification. And so it it became a thing where I wasn't going to let my three days of my week um, center around a medical process that left me wiped out. I wanted more than that. And that meant freeing up my evenings and days to for gainful employment. And that's that was my choice. So it did make a very big difference from a quality of life perspective for you so that you could also go about, you know, caring for your children uh, and working, you know, um, full time per se. But I think addressing social determinants of health, um, especially housing and patients living environment, as um, Jesse alluded to, is I think critical in achieving, you know, an ideal setup uh, from whole therapies. What, in your opinion, is the one thing that nephrologists can do for identification and resolutions for um, social determinants of health? I'll begin with uh, Danushka. So I think that, um, I, you know, what can nephrologists do? I, I am really liking some of the innovations that are occurring in the primary care space and in certain electronic health systems that sort of do an intake and iterative process around understanding social determinants of health. Uh, from the get-go, as part of learning what is going on in a patient's life, seeing them fully, including all of the facilitators and barriers to getting the care that they need. I, I don't know if it is feasible for that to necessarily be part of the nephrologist's daily visit per se, right? But I think that that is the, the ideal of something that can be built into the infrastructure. And then it is our job to have those very critical conversations where we're really getting to know our patients, understand their values, understand their expectations, understand their desires, and then align the treatment, the conversations, the preparation with those values and really center their voices and their wishes in our decision-making, um, whether that is a home modality transplantation or something else. But I think that the, you know, our systems need to be incentivized to build in the, again, understanding the social determinants uh, of health at the outset. And then payment reform models that really take that into account, I guess, you know, we all need to start thinking out of the box. How do we solve this problem? The nephrologist alone, I, I don't think is going to be able to, to tackle each of these. And we need systems level approaches. Jenny? Yeah, just one thing. That's a, that's a really tricky question. My answer, it's not really that practical, but it would be just ask your patient. What's your major issue? What's your major concern with, um, in the context of modality choice? You know, if you're interested in doing home, what's what's stopping you? And I say it's not practical because I have to admit I have the luxury of working at an academic center, even though it's a safety net hospital. So I do have the luxury of time that I think many nephrologists do not. And I do appreciate that there's a huge issue with time pressure and that not everybody's going to have the time that you need to really have a meaningful conversation. So, I mean, and this is just true of what everything that we're saying here, right? It can't just be the nephrologist. It's got to be the whole system that changes. And the other thing is, I do have to think it's really cute that you said that home dialysis is in vogue. Um, but it kind of reminds me of, I don't know if you guys watched the movie, uh, The Devil Wears Prada, where it's like, I feel like right now home therapy is like, at fashion week and we're on the runway and it's like awesome and amazing but like it really hasn't trickled down into the targets and the walmarts where you know everybody's really is getting access to it and everybody knows about it and knows what to do so i'm hoping this will be part of the push to get it where like it really is accessible to everybody and that all nephrologists actually feel comfortable practicing it and thinking about it and um i think a lot of our biases aren't necessarily I mean, a lot of it stems from just really not having a lot of familiarity with 
with actually doing home dialysis. Jesse? Yeah, just to talk about the social determinants of health thing, I do think it's a, I, I think it's a multi-pronged thing. I agree that just asking the patients is one aspect of it. Um, I think it's important to sort of understand it from how they understand themselves, but we have to ask these in the right way. And a lot of these questions are sensitive. Not everyone's going to want to admit to all of that. So I think it, that needs to be complemented with seamless sort of integration of this. And there's tons of data out there and it's trying to be used to sell you tchotchkes on Instagram or whatever. And I think we maybe need to start using some of that data to understand our patients in, in sort of a seamless way so that it's just automatically populated. So I think that's maybe where the future is going to go. And I, I think it can be, we can use that data for good. You know, at the cost of si sounding slightly repetitive, you know, I mean, I think home therapies should be considered just as viable, you know, as, as a care site in, you know, in an acute facility. I think it's important that we, you know, we bring this in as like a mainstream um, treatment modality, which is, which as, you know, as you said, it hasn't happened yet. How can we foster greater trust, you know, in adoption of in-home therapies, uh, knowing that it's convenient, it also um, coordinate, you know, coordinated care in this sense, boosts adherence, increasing engagement and improves clinical outcome. So how do we make sure that um, there's a buy-in from, you know, from the policymakers uh, so that this trickles down pretty much till the patient? I'd like to start with Jenny. In terms of increasing buy-in, I think, to be fair, there's a difference between trying to convince policymakers versus convincing uh, the community, uh, the nephrology community. And then there's a difference between convincing the healthcare providers versus the patients and the caregivers. Um, so I think there might be other people on this call who are better suited to comment on the policymakers. I think in terms of like the healthcare practitioner's point of view, so the nephrologists, the nurse practitioners, the nurses, and et cetera, I think what we're doing right now, we're on the right track of at our conferences, national conferences, really making sure that we have a lot of sessions where we're teaching people about this so they really know about it. And I think, um, you know, Melissa would know much more about this than I would. I think from what I hear from my patients is that we really need to make sure that our patients who have experience on home dialysis um, have a chance um, and that we give them the resources to really spread their stories. Things like, I'm just talking about myself as a patient. Um, so, you know, when I was pregnant, a lot of the things that I had questions about, I didn't really ask my own doctor about. I asked my other friends who had been pregnant before. And so I think a lot of this type of peer mentoring would go a long way. But again, you know, if you're going to have ask somebody to share their stories, let's be honest, you have to make sure they have the resources. So to ask them to volunteer their time, I think is a lot. Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had more mechanisms where we had, you know, grants or other sorts of mechanisms, you know, for example, having formal systems where you do have uh, community health workers, like we were discussing before, where you get paid um, to do this a very important role. Danushka? I, th I think that was brilliantly said, and I'm going to defer as well, just because I think this is where patients' voices need to be elevated, and, and we need to sort of learn what is the best practice, um, in, including in if I haven't experienced something, right, as much as I know the data around it, it it's never going to be as compelling as to hear it from somebody who is right next to you. So I, even, even in terms of the transplant world, right, when I think about interventions that have actually worked, this sort of social network, peer mentoring, let's share these stories, share stories about what it was like to ask uh, someone for a kidney, for a living donation. I think this is the same sort of approach that we need to be using, um, as was already mentioned, in this realm for home modalities. Jesse? 
um, Jenny had mentioned the policy piece of it. And so I had the privilege of working for CMS when they were writing rules on this and trying to encourage. And I actually do think there's buying from the government. Some people would say that they've set almost too lofty goals on um, home dialysis uptake. But I think as we go more towards value-based care and paying for outcomes instead of paying for procedures, I think we will see it. I think people will see the value of it and they'll see the, the value of it in terms of patient outcomes, but also the value of it in terms of dollars, keeping people out of the hospital, keeping people healthier overall. And I think once we see that, I think that's when we'll really start to see buying and uptake the sort of, and I think we're going to start seeing it with the new models that CMS has put out, encouraging home therapies, encouraging transplants, and showing benefit both the patients and the taxpayer in terms of savings. You know, to delve further into policy, since Jesse, you were involved with, um, you know, with CMS on that front, I, you know, I'd, I'd like if you could share with us what exactly has been put forward to encourage um, home therapies so that our fellow nephrologists could know as well and, and spread the word? So if you participate in one of the models, so the comprehensive kidney care choices models or the ESRD treatment choices models, those are specifically designed to financially reward people being on, one, getting transplants um, and two, being on home therapies. Um, you're incentivized, you're paid by, if you have a higher uptake of, you're paid more if you get a higher uptake of um, home therapies. There's also a health equity component to make sure that you're doing it in an equitable way. Um, there's a transplant bonus that's paid for every year that the patient has an active transplant that's paid to the um, nephrology practices. I think all, all those ways are ways in which the government's trying to in encourage these therapies. They set a goal of like 80% of new starts should get a transplant or a home therapy. I think that that may be a little high, but I think it's sort of like the moonshot goal. And I think they're trying to implement policies that are encouraging that. Um, Jenny mentioned a very important point. Um, a lesser known fact is that actually, before I say the important point is that Jenny organized a session for home dialysis at the NKF and was one of the most attended sessions. Um, so kudos to you for doing that for such an important cause. But I think you mentioned another important point about patient stories. I think, you know, there is uh, a code of code word of mouth about, you know, this therapy, whether or not, you know, patients are actually something that patient would want to take over. So I'd like to ask Melissa, you know, since you're involved with advocacy, how much has sharing your story helped in, in patients taking up this form of therapy? So it's interesting. I, I'd have to, I guess, ask the patients how effective the, the story has been for them. But, you know, I've got real life examples in my own family. My, my grandfather uh, was diagnosed with kidney failure after me. And he, in fact, did home therapies uh, simply because he knew that how successful I had been with it. Um, and he really wanted to embrace being at home. I've met a, a number of people, whether it's in my career or through patient advocacy, that just had questions about like, really, what is it like? And one of the things I suggested to them is, if you're doing in-center dialysis, start small. And the way I started was sticking my own needles. I, you know, the first infiltration that I had when my fistula was developed was enough for me to decide, yeah, I think I'm gonna stick my own needles. And even starting small like that, 
builds the confidence that patients need to ultimately think about managing their own care. You don't just go straight to, yeah, I want to run a, a, a full dialysis treatment and set up the machine and all that. I think starting small really gives you that opportunity to gradually get into that. Well, you already had success um, in the family uh, in, in adoption of home dialysis. So that's a big one. But as we come towards the end of this podcast, you know, I think training um, future providers, you know, with this modality is very important. It is starting to be adopted in fellowship programs. And I think there are fellowship programs that offer this itself as a specialization. From an academic perspective, um, I'd love to know what we need to do more to promote this uh, in, in fellowships. And having worked with fellows, what is their perception of this and how we can improve that for them? So I'd like to begin with Danushka. So um, I, I will say a, f- a few things on this. I mean, I think that now it should be sort of an expectation that uh, a very intensive home modality therapy and an outpatient training kind of capacity is built across programs. Um, I've been, and I'm very recently out of training, and I'm so delighted to see that that's the kind of the national trend and where we're going. Um, I think actually transplant, having some basic concepts for managing transplant one year out is another thing that we need to be prioritizing just because that is hopefully going to be more and more of our future in general nephrology. Uh, I think along those lines, I'll just make one other comment. I think that we need to take this uh, approach of embedding sort of an equity lens into every single bit of nephrology training as well as sort of part and parcel, not as we're doing a separate equity lecture, but as we're thinking about home modalities, let's think about how to ensure that there is equity in what we're doing, how we're thinking about a patient, how we're addressing structural barriers, how we're engaging families and caregivers in the process of having this conversation, having truly, again, shared and informed decision, making conversations, learning on how to have those conversations well, is all kind of, I think, part of the integrated you know, training that, that we need to complement hearing from experts like Dr. Shen in, in all of these various you know, kind of national forums for advancing CME. Jesse, any thoughts? Yes, I um I agree with everything that's been said. Um, I also think that, especially the part about equity being embedded into everything, this is what, when I've been at CVS, when we've been talking about the metrics that we're using, we don't want to have equity metrics. We just want to, if it's worth measuring, it's worth measuring if we're doing it in an equitable manner. And so it should permeate every aspect of our care and our businesses and everything. I also think it's important to, if we're going to increase this, we need to increase the people that are being trained in it. I also think we need to think about different ways of delivering. Um, I'll make a plug for us for CVS Health because we're trying to deliver it in different ways that come closer to the patients and come more into the communities. And we're thinking, trying to be a home first company. And so I think looking at sort of novel ways to reach people and deliver care is something else that we're going to have to do. Jenny? Yeah, I think first of all, all of us on this call believe in home. <laughs> I don't think that's the case for everybody. So I think um, there are definitely people, and I support them, who are pushing to make sure that we actually have a requirement that um, in the nephrology fellowship to get a certain basic amount of home therapy experience, such, you know, very similar to what we have in transplant. Because, you know, as a nephrologist, you should have some basic knowledge of, of transplant and of home dialysis. Now, with that said, since we've come through like so many decades of not having a lot of home dialysis therapy, I don't think it's reasonable to expect every single 
training program to have a home dialysis expert. So let's help these programs out. So I am super lucky. I trained in and I'm currently in a program that has a lot of home dialysis expertise, but we got to figure out some way of mentoring these programs that don't have these resources. I think it's great. There are a lot of virtual and in-person didactics to kind of give you the basics. But one of the issues that I had was when I started going to practice is, oh my gosh, well, this patient is not like the patient that I you know, saw when I was studying uh, for boards, what do I do now? And, you know, I would text my attendings who are experts. And so we need to figure out how do we formalize that? How do we make sure that people who aren't comfortable with home or, you know, whatever else they're trying to learn transplant, how do we hook them up with mentors in a longitudinal way? So if they want to increase their home therapy expertise and their patient panel, that they don't lose their patients because they don't know what to do in a complicated case because they don't know where to turn for help. And there are a number of different organizations that are working on these models and to make it accessible. Um, so I think I'm glad that we're all working on this. I'm, I'm really excited to see where all these all these programs go. Well, Melissa, Jesse, Danushka, and Jenny, uh, thank you so much for spending uh, time to record this podcast and your valuable insights uh, on home therapies. Uh, we highly appreciate you being here. Um, to the listeners, I hope you find this episode useful and please post any questions that you might have. Uh, we will see you during the next one. Thank you. Take care. Mm-hmm.